will be the last uh, session on this particular subject. And then, Lord willing, next year, first Wednesday in January, we'll continue the foundation series. But the next core foundation stone will be labeled God. So we're going to go from the Bible and then to God and try to answer questions like, does he exist? How do you know he does? And if he does, what is he like? What does his omnipotence and omniscience, what does his sovereignty look like? What are the ramifications for us? How does he manifest himself? Some people speak of the Trinity. We'll try to explain the Trinity. And then we'll talk about each of the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and so on. So that's what we'll do starting in January. For now, let's talk a little more about the Bible. Here goes Heather with Wycliffe Bible Translators, intent on making this life-changing Word of God available to people in their native tongue, A little shocking, Heather, to hear, even in this day, out of 7,000 languages, only 400 plus have the entire Bible. Lots of work to be done. So we've been entrusted here with the Bible in a language we can fully understand, and yet it's subject to many interpretations. Have you heard it said, you can make the Bible say anything you want? Have you run into someone who has dismissed the Bible simply by saying, well, it's just a matter of how you interpret it. There are many interpretations. Do you agree with that? Good. Uh, You have answered correctly. There may be many translations. I, I hope we have a translation of the Bible in everybody's native language. But frankly, folks, there's only one correct interpretation of absolutely every verse of scripture in the Bible. Only one. And since there's only one correct interpretation of the Bible, we would be remiss if we didn't do what we could to discern principles of interpretation. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What are principles by which we can arrive at the one true meaning of any text of Scripture? So let me begin by giving you a general principle of interpretation, and then some specific principles. Here's the first and most important general principle of interpretation. The entire Bible is centered on Jesus Christ. If you understand that, you will have one of the keys by which you can unlock the Bible and get to its true interpretation. Jesus Christ is the focus of both Old and New Testaments. I used to wonder if he is, why is his name not mentioned in the Old Testament? And then I realized, oh my goodness, it is hundreds of times. Whenever you see the word save, salvation, or a form thereof, you're reading the word Yeshua, which is Jesus. He's all through the Old Testament. So he's the center of both Testaments of the Bible. Therefore, no part of the Bible can be properly understood apart from its 
connection, its relationship to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So from Genesis to Revelation, how many books does Yes, 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible tells a singular story, and the story has to do with the rescue of mankind through the death of Jesus Christ. If you know that, you have one of the most important keys in unlocking the true meaning of Scripture. The singular message is the redemption of mankind through the death of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament presents him as the hope of mankind, and the New Testament presents him as the fulfillment of that hope. Please put him right in the center of both Testaments, and you will see them both connected. Old Testament looks to him as the hope. New Testament shows us he has come and revealed to us the hope which he has brought. The Old Testament says the Messiah is coming. The Gospels say the Messiah, fill it in, has come or the Messiah is here. And the Epistles say the Messiah is coming again. So there you have a threefold outline which will help you to see the unity of the scriptures. Once again, the Old Testament says the Messiah is and the Gospels. What are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Those four Gospels say the Messiah has and the epistles. What's another word for epistles? Letters. The letters of the New Testament say the Messiah is. That's right. Get ready. So there you have a threefold outline of the Bible. Can you see that Jesus the Messiah has a central place in linking it all together? It was written, this wonderful word of God, by 40 different authors over about 1,600 years in three different languages. What languages yell them out? Hebrew and Aramaic. That's right, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic by writers coming from all different kinds of walks of life and on three different continents, Asia and Africa and Europe. And yet, in spite of these wide diversities, the Bible is a unity of thought and purpose and theme and doctrine, and it is all unified by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the interpretive, the key interpretive principle of the scriptures is Christ the center of Old and New Testament. So the Bible tells us about one villain, and it starts with S. What's his name? Okay, so great. Uh, the, the other things I'm going to ask you to fill in also start with S. It'll be fun. So the, the Bible speaks of one villain, Satan, and the Bible speaks of one problem, starts with S. What is it? Sin. And the Bible speaks of one hero, Savior, and the Bible speaks of one purpose, salvation. Isn't that good? There's an outline of the Bible. Let's go over it again. The Bible speaks of one villain and of one problem and one hero and one purpose. Okay, there. Now you can hold Genesis to Revelation together. It's not discordant. It's not discrepant. Books aren't tacked on. There's a linkage. There's a connection. And there you have it. We just gave it to you. So then you cannot properly understand and interpret the Bible unless you see it as centering on the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. That is the key interpretive principle of the Bible. That being said, let me suggest to you some more specific principles of biblical interpretation. Here's the first. 
interpret scripture according to its original meaning. So that's the first specific principle of biblical interpretation. Interpret scripture according to its original meaning. See, here's the problem we have. Scripture was written a long time ago. And when it was, it was communicated to people in languages other than ours. And it was communicated to members of cultural groups very much different than ours. So there is quite a substantial gap between the original recipients of the books of the Bible and us. Really, thousands of years in language and culture and all the rest. So this presents us with quite a weighty challenge. That is to say, we have to narrow the gap between language differences and cultural differences and chronological differences. And how do we do that? Well, by diligent study of the words of the Bible and the authorship and the recipients and the geography and the archaeology and the culture and the historical setting of the text so as to see what the passage meant to the original audience. Very, very important. Remember, first principle of biblical interpretation, interpret scripture according to its original meaning. So, you can't start with this question when you're interpreting the Bible. What does the text mean to me? With all due respect, who cares what it means to you? Who do you think you are? Are you the measure Are you the standard of what scripture is saying? I know we're prone to do that today. This, it means this to me. It means that to you. What are you talking about? The proper question to ask is not what does the text mean to me, but what did the text mean to the original audience? That is very, very important. In other words, you cannot start with personal application. I know we're into that. And which is good. We, we want to apply the Bible to our lives and make it relevant and useful and practical and transforming. But you cannot start with application. You have to start with accurate interpretation. If you start with application, there's a strong likelihood that your application will be based on a misinterpretation. For instance, I heard this television preacher one time, and he was telling people that it's God's will for us all to be rich. So that's kind of a good message. I was all ears. And he said, and I shall prove it to you. He said, the Lord was rich and always had money at his disposal and wanted his followers to realize that they too had wealth at their disposal. And so he said, remember when Jesus had some of his boys go fishing up there in Israel and and they pulled out a fish and he extracted from the fish's mouth some money. And so he said, you see, uh, he always had money at his disposal. And if you walk obediently uh, with him, if you follow him correctly, you too will have unlimited access to the world's wealth. So he was making an application from the text. But there's a problem. The application was based on a grossly distorted misinterpretation of the text. Do you remember the episode? A question was put to Rabbi Jesus. Should we pay our taxes? That's a good question around this time of year, don't you think? We're getting ready. I wish his answer was, nah, blow it off. 
<laughs> but it wasn't. When the coin was extracted, you know what he said. Examine it. Whose image is on it? Caesar's. Well, then rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's. The government is there. I put it in force. That's the government's due. Pay your taxes. Be a good Christian citizen. But make sure you don't render to Caesar what is due Almighty God, that is worship in unbridled yieldedness, submission, and obedience. You see? So that's the interpretation of the text. So, so let me tell you this. There's only one correct interpretation of any verse of scripture, though there may be manifold applications of it. Isn't this the beauty of studying the Bible? You could read a verse of scripture today and read it a month later and God's spirit can apply it to your life in a different way. Manifold applications flowing from the one true interpretation, but you have to locate and identify the one true interpretation before you can go off and apply it to your life. Folks, you can get in big trouble if with unbridled zeal you just apply passages of scripture to your life without studying them in the context to see what did they mean to the original audience before you say, now this is what it means to me. There's only one correct meaning of any passage of scripture and that meaning has to be the same for us as it was for the original recipients. If you derive a meaning from the text that is inconsistent with what we think it meant to the original recipients, you have interpreted it incorrectly. In other words, a text of scripture can never mean what it never meant. You get it? Don't make it mean something today it never meant when it was originally spoken. You can't do it that way. So to figure out what it meant, you have to study it diligently. Its language, its culture, its context, all the rest. So then, the first specific principle of biblical interpretation is interpret scripture according to its Original meaning. And the second principle is this. Interpret scripture according to its literary form. Interpret scripture according to its literary form. Do you know another word for literary form? It's a French word. Genre. Or, or, or for you Texans, genre. <laughs> Genre, a literary form. Isn't it wonderful how stimulating is this, the Bible? We have in it different literary forms. We have historical narrative. Genesis is historical narrative. It's not mythology and legend. Don't make it say, say that. No, no, it's historical narrative. You have prose. You have poetry. Oh, the beautiful poetry of the ancient hymn book of Israel, the Psalms. You have um, uh, what's called apocalyptic literature. Uh, what's apocalyptic? What book of the Bible? St yeah, Revelation. That's apocalyptic literature. So you have narrative and you have prose and you have poetry. And yet, you know what you have? You have Proverbs. In fact, you have a whole book called the Book of Proverbs. But there are Proverbs elsewhere in the Bible. You know what a proverb is? It's a form of literary expression that states a general truth. It's never meant to be a scientific, precise truth. It's meant to be a general truth. For instance, here's kind of a proverbial sort of a thing. Um, my wife comes uh, from Oregon. 
what she refers to as God's country. And so you could, you could pray for her. And uh, anyway, uh, in, if you were in Oregon and you asked one of the natives, one of the Oregonians, hey, what's it like over here? What's the weather like? It's possible that you might hear a proverbial expression that native Oregonian might say in answer to your question, oh, it rains here all the time. Now, that's a proverb. That person didn't mean it to be a meteorologically accurate and precise statement. There might be one or two days in the year when it isn't raining out there. So to say it rains all the time is not exactly scientifically accurate. The person didn't mean it to be scientifically accurate. The person is just saying, you know, it rains here a lot more than it should and a lot more than in a lot of places in the world. We do that all the time. It's a proverbial expression. So when you read the uh, book of Proverbs, you can't make it scientifically precise. You know what the general teaching of the book of Proverbs is? Here it is. If you do good, you will feel good. I think that's one of the major themes of the book of Proverbs. But it's not a scientifically, precisely accurate statement because there are Christians, many who do good, who are not feeling good. In fact, they're struggling with manifold diseases right now. So you can't say, look, the book of Proverbs is in error. You could say, no, your interpretive skills are in error because you're making a book of Proverbs like historical na- narrative, like a, like a scientific textbook. It's not meant to do that. It's a statement of general truth. Folks, generally... Do things God's way and it will be better for you emotionally, physically, and interpersonally. All the rest, it's a proverbial expression. So this is the second principle of interpretation. Interpret scripture according to its literary uh, form. Some statements in the Bible are figurative and some are literal. For instance, let me share this with you. Tell me if it's literal or figurative. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is it literal or figurative? It is literal. It's a statement of literal fact. It's not a metaphor. It's not hyperbole. It's not anything like that. It's a statement of literal fact. But how about this one? Uh, The Lord's words in John chapter 10, verse 7. I am the door of the sheep. Literal or figurative? Figurative. It's a figure of speech. We use them all the time. How about this one? Two heads are better than one. Not literally true that would make for two headaches it's a figure of speech people who live in glass houses or as they say should dress in the basement have you have you heard that one so we have these figures of speech now there are many in the bible and if you don't recognize the figures of speech you're in danger of making a terrible terrible misinterpretation from which will flow uh, a, a terribly distorted application for instance i'll give you this one if your right eye offends you do what literal or figurative yeah you see if you're not interpreting it as the figure of speech it is what application are you led to Come on. You see? So though the Bible is all true, 
It has to be interpreted in terms of its form of language. How about this one? There's something called hyperbole. Hyperbole is deliberate exaggeration in order to make a truth. So let me give you an example of hyperbole, which really blows a lot of people away because the Lord said this. Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, can't get around it. That's the word. And does not hate, get this, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. That is in the Bible. And the original language, in this case Greek, does not soften the sense. What is the Lord saying? You see, a very distorted application would be we should hate. And you get some crazy cult-like people who, uh, under the guise of doing that which is pleasing to God, are stealing from relatives or separating from family members and so on. That's not what's in view here. This is hyperbole. This is the Lord choosing a literary form, a figure of speech, deliberate exaggeration to make a truth. You know what the truth is? In comparison to our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, any other attachment should seem like it's hate. Our loyalty and our responsiveness to him should be such high priority. That no relationship, no bond, no connection, no loyalty to anyone else should in any way come close to competing with our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the truth stated in such dramatic and exaggerated fashion that it forces the reader to stop and say, You mean it, Lord. You really are Lord, aren't you? Nobody else is. Nobody is worthy of my attention like you are. Nobody is worthy of my loyalty and worship like you are. You see, it's hyperbole. So so this wonderful second principle of biblical interpretation can really save you a lot of goofball interpretations. Interpret scripture according to its literary form. So the first one, interpret scripture according to its original meaning. Second, interpret scripture according to its literary form. Third, interpret scripture according to its context. According to its context. You see, the Bible is not a collection of verses put together without any relationship to one another. Some people preach it and teach it like it is. So they pluck a verse here and they pluck a verse there. Listen, that would offend William Shakespeare if we did it with Hamlet, let alone Almighty God. His book, the Bible, is not a collection of disconnected, uh, arbitrarily put in verses of Scripture. If it's verse 1, it leads to verse 2, which leads to verse 3. And if you're just looking at verse 3 and you haven't looked at verses 1 and 2, you are doing the Bible a disservice because you're not examining verse 3 in its context. So, 
If you do that, you're on the verge of arriving at some really bizarre and unusual theologies. But you can't do that because no single verse of Scripture is sufficient to lead to any theological system. <laughs> you have to see the totality of Scripture before you develop some, some theology. A single detached verse does not a theology make. Each verse has an immediate context. In other words, what comes before it and what comes after it. And each verse has a wider context. That is to say, what book of the Bible is it in? What part of the Bible is it in? So you have to figure this out in order to avoid making certain interpretive errors like these. You may think every promise in the Bible, just because it's in the Bible, is for you. It is not. You can read Isaiah and find a whole litany of promises of condemnation and judgment directed to nations like Assyria and Babylon. Well, those are promises and those are in the Bible. But thank God they don't apply to you. They're in Isaiah, they're in the Old Testament, they're directed to other nations of the world. And all you got to do is examine the context. Uh, otherwise, you, without boundary, just apply everything in the Bible as a promise to you. It's not to you. Look, <clears throat> someone approached me one time with a very valid question. Why don't we worship on Saturday on the Sabbath? Well, there's a whole lot of things I could say about that. But one of the things is, it, first of all, that commandment wasn't even given to you. Unless you're Jewish. That's the law of Moses, folks. There's no such thing as a Gentile Sabbath. Sunday is not the Gentile Sabbath. You know what Sunday is? The day on which we meet to commemorate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. What are you going back to the Old Testament law of Moses to worship on the Sabbath? I don't want to go back there for crying out loud. We're going this way. What are you going back the book of Leviticus says a whole bunch of stuff, but, 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 but it doesn't all apply to you, does it? When was the last time you sacrificed an unblemished male lamb in your backyard? <laughs> so just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it applies to you. doesn't mean there's no, nothing to learn from it. I didn't say that. It doesn't mean it lacks the mark of inspiration. I'm just saying not every promise in the Bible is given to every person, and thank God. It's not. So you have to examine the context in order to avoid making certain interpretive errors. Another one is thinking every practice in the Bible is for today. I can tell you this. I don't know if you've thought through this a lot, but most of you ladies, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, are sitting here in violation tonight because I see only a few of you with uh, a head covering. In fact, most of you have... Heather, you too. Sorry, kiddo. Short hair. <laughs> you read First Corinthians 11, you're not supposed to cut your hair. And you got to be wearing hats. Men, on the other hand, are not supposed to wear hats. Sort of says that in the Bible. Why is it that you ladies are not practicing that today? But somehow you've figured out that that practice had a cultural trapping that doesn't apply today. The principle still applies if the context is... Uh, appropriate roles in church and family between husband and wife, males and females. The principle continues, but the practice doesn't continue. So we make these decisions 
all the time. You know, in the old days, ladies, if you walked into a worship service looking the way you are, um, you, you would be thought to be on the prowl for a man. Yeah, some of you are. Let's just face it. And I, I mean, I wish you well. Good luck. <clears throat> you see, see, then short hair was an indication of flirtatiousness. Tonight, tonight, it, I mean, that's not the case now. Now it's just an indication that uh, you paid 80 bucks to have your hair cut. Anyway, you can't read more into it than that. You see, so, so not every promise in the Bible is for you. Not every practice in the Bible is to be repeated. Look, can I give you the most obvious practice? How many times does the Lord Jesus have to die on the cross? One time. So though he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, it doesn't mean everything occurring in the Bible is to reoccur in every generation. That, that's, that's not the case. So you have to examine the context to sort of figure that out. Okay, so in sum, first principle, interpret Scripture according to its original meaning. Second, interpret Scripture according to its literary form. Third, interpret Scripture according to its context. And the last one, interpret Scripture according to other scripture. Interpret scripture according to other scripture. You can avoid all kinds of unusual interpretations simply by comparing a verse with other verses. Why? Because God doesn't contradict himself. Because he's a God of order, does not lie, and does not contradict himself. Therefore, two verses of scripture can be harmonized and ought to be. In fact, it's called the principle of harmonization. So if you come up with a thought that you discovered in some isolated esoteric place in the Bible from which you want to change the way we do things, well, the onus of responsibility is on you to square it with the rest of Scripture. If you can't square it with the rest of Scripture, if you cannot harmonize that, 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 that very esoteric thought with the body of Scripture, then you are misinterpreting it. And the way you do this is to use clearer passages of Scripture to interpret the less clear. Let me illustrate. In two places in Hebrews there's a text which seems to give indication to the fact that one who is saved can lose his salvation in Hebrews. It's troubled lots of Christians throughout the millennia. But I'll tell you the easiest solution to it without doing a, a more rigorous study is simply to say, well, I only find that in two places in Hebrews, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. <laughs> but the rest of the scriptures make it clear by faith. I am saved by grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus. And that cannot be forfeited because it was not merited to begin with. I can't forfeit what I didn't deserve to begin with. It was all given by grace. So if you are one who holds to the fact that you can lose your salvation, and whenever we get to that building block, which will be about a thousand years from now, salvation, I'll prove to you you can't lose it. I'll, I'll prove to you. Not because I'm so smart, it's just the scriptures make it really, really clear. So if you believe that you can lose yourself, you have to square it with the rest of scripture. How about baptizing babies? We don't do that uh, around here. Uh, we baptize believers of any age when someone is of sufficient comprehension to understand what the Lord Jesus has done for them. They're ready to publicly identify with him through the waters of baptism. We don't do babies. So if you're from a faith group that does, 
the burden is on you. <laughs> you may find a, a, a passage of scripture in Acts that says he and his whole family were baptized. And you may read into that. Therefore, I assume in the family there might have been young ones, even infants, and that's why we baptize infants. Now, if you're building that whole theology of infant baptism on that passage, ah, then you're missing this fourth principle of biblical interpretation because you have to harmonize that with all the rest of Scripture, which so clearly indicates the order of things is to hear the greatest story ever told, to believe in it, and then to be baptized. You see what I'm saying? So this can save us a multitude of false interpretations. So you use clearer passages to interpret less clear, and you use later passages to interpret the earlier ones. In other words, we interpret the Old Testament through New Testament eyes. You interpret earlier passages through the lens of later passages. So when I'm reading the Old Testament, I'm looking at it through its fulfillment in the New Testament. So when I'm reading in the book of Leviticus, as I mentioned earlier, about this endless succession of bulls and goats and all the rest, and, uh, that uh, the terrible blood that was shed for the remission of sins, I'm seeing all that to be a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the Lord Jesus. How do I know that? Because I'm in the New Testament, and I'm using later scripture, the New Testament, to interpret the Old Testament. You see how it works? It's called the principle of harmonization. Okay. A few more minutes, folks. I just want to demonstrate to you how um, using some of these principles of interpretation can help you out. Have you ever heard of this verse, <clears throat> this thought? Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's in Proverbs 22, verse 6. It's a verse that many well-intentioned Christian parents have taken to give them assurance and hope that though now their child may be on the run from God, may be going astray, still, based upon that promise, train up a child in the way he should go, I did, took him to Sunday school class, brought him to church, told him about the Lord Jesus, lived a consistently Christian life in front of him, Train up a child, I did, in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he won't depart from it. Ah, so it's taken as a promise, giving hope that one day that child will return to the fold. There's a problem with that thinking. As much as I wish it were true, that is not what that verse is teaching. I want you to have hope, and I want to have hope if and when that kind of thing happens. But I can't find it in that verse if I want to be true to the text. It's not what it says. Well, how do I know it doesn't say that? Well, remember we were talking about what did it mean to the original recipients? Well, the original recipients were Jews. And what language did they speak? Yeah, they spoke Hebrew. They, they, I mean, the Jews, the, they spoke Hebrew. So therefore, I have to figure out what does this verse really say in Hebrew? And this is what it says. It does not say train up a child in the way he should go. In the Hebrew, it says, train parents, train up a child according to his God-given personality, according to his way, his unique God-given way. Why? Because even when he's old, those personality characteristics will endure. So start now. You know what it's saying, parents? Study your children. It's saying, parents, get rid of standardized parenting. 
It's saying, parents, if you have two children, don't parent them the same way. How, how should you do it? No, no. You should train them according to their way. Uh, the same parents can have two kids who are totally different. In fact, you think you got the wrong baby. You know how it is. One is very neat and orderly and the other is like a slob. One is happy-go-lucky and the other is quite intense. One likes a lot of physical things and the other likes reflective things. You think the babies were switched. No, 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 no. What is your job? Don't leave it up to the school teacher or the church to train up your child. Oh, no, parent. You study the unique personality and temperament traits of your children and form a training program in light of the God-given uniqueness of your child. Why? Because those patterns endure. Even that, when that child is an adult, he'll still like to read. He'll, he'll still like to think. He'll still be a slob. So I, I want to give hope to parents of children who have gone astray, but I can't do it by Scripture twisting. The hope I have to give is, you know, nobody cares for your teenager more than Almighty God. Let's team up with Almighty God and beseech him to mercifully lay hold of your son and bring him back. Well, that's what we do. But I can't use Proverbs 22.6 if I want to apply accurate biblical interpretation. Let me give you, let me, let me give you just one more, one more example. Have you heard this expression here just all the time? I'm entering into agreement with you. It's like a prayer thing. Sometimes you say, listen, will you enter into agreement with me in praying for something or other? And people get this from one place in the Bible, Matthew chapter 18, verse 19. It says there, again, I say to you that if two of you agree, that's where it comes from, agree on earth about anything, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And so taking this verse out of context, without examining what did it mean to the original recipients, what verses come before, what verses come after, just plucking it out of context, it really looks like, oh, I have to find a prayer partner who will agree with me about a certain outcome. Because apparently, if together we gang up on God, he'll give us what we want. So, you know, if I can find even more than one person to agree with me, if I can find like two or three agreeable people, I will twist God's arm. And, 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 and I'll get my Lexus. <laughs> so will you agree with me, please, for my Lexus, okay? You said, but what is Matthew 18 really saying? Well, if you examine simply the context, just read it from the beginning. You know what you're going to find? It's about church discipline. And if there's a wayward member of the fellowship, you know what God is saying to the duly appointed leaders of the fellowship? If you get together seeing that corrective action is necessary because this misbehavior cannot go unchecked in the local fellowship. So if you duly appointed leaders get together to apply corrective action, you know what God says? If two of you agree on this, I affirm it and support it and it will be done. Read Matthew 18. It's about church discipline. So today you get this. You hear on TV all the time. I'm agreeing with you for your healing. I'm agreeing with you for your this. You can agree all you want. I mean, God doesn't feel the pressure. He doesn't answer prayer by consensus. You know, you, 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 I got to, will you sign my prayer petition? 
I want to be six feet tall. Can you, can I get your signature and I'll submit it? Because if I get like a million signatures, do I get God's? Come on. Could I give you just another principle of biblical interpretation that really isn't too sophisticated, but it's this. Don't make the Bible say something stupid. That's really a good principle of biblical interpretation. It's foolish to think you who have been personally redeemed by a personal Savior from your personal sin problem need someone to buddy up with you in order to gang up on God because your father won't give you his attention unless you get a majority of people beckoning for it. I have a personal relationship with Abba, Papa, Daddy. I can charge into the throne room at any time just as I am. If you want to come, have at it. But I don't need to go through you or with you. For there is one mediator, and it ain't you, and it ain't a petition. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't make the Bible say something crazy. Will you enter into agreement with me about being what? Stupid? All you got to do is examine the immediate context of Matthew 18 and you'll see that that whole thing of agreeing has to do with church leaders agreeing on a corrective course of action. And it's very, if you've ever been in a church leadership position and had to exercise church discipline, you get real nervous. There's all kinds of legal concerns and people get mad at you. You know what God is saying? Don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Don't be sheepish. Protect the flock, its purity, and all the rest. Exercise church discipline. If you leaders agree on it, don't worry. It'll be done. That's what's being said in Matthew 18. Okay, well, I could go uh, on and on and on and on, but now my blood pressure, I could feel it. It's like, man, it's off the... See, well, here's the deal. Here's the goal. Here's the goal. Second Timothy. Be diligent. Doesn't say be sloppy, haphazard, lazy, casual. Be diligent to present yourself. Uh-oh. You're on. To present yourself. How? Approved to God. Oh, you mean I'm going to stand before him? You bet your bippy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. How? As a workman. You know what it means? A skilled craftsman who does not need to be ashamed. I have to tell you a lot of folks who are scripture twisters because they're not diligent students of the Bible and leading many astray will stand before Almighty God. Maybe they're saved, but they'll stand before Almighty God and they'll weep in shame because they have not handled the scriptures with integrity. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. That's our goal, folks. Heather's going to go at great personal sacrifice cross-culturally with Wycliffe Bible translators, putting their lives on the line in order to make the words of God available to people who otherwise would not hear. It's just that precious and valuable and important. Folks, we have to take it seriously. Why are you giving your time to speakers and authors who are totally untrained in handling the scriptures? I don't care if it's a number one bestseller. What are his qualifications? 
Does he know the original languages? Can he study the scriptures? Folks, if you had a boil, you wouldn't have an unlicensed medical practitioner lance your boil. Then why are you entrusting your soul to teachers who have no skill and training in handling words of life? Why? I don't care how big the church, how endearing and how good the guy looks in a suit. If he can't handle the text skillfully for lack of training, study, diligence, and intent, why are you listening? I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, folks, the word of God is so vital, so powerful that through it, God spoke into existence the very world we inhabit. This is just how powerful it is. It's very reliable. We tried to make that case. It's historically accurate, scientifically credible. Archaeological evidence only supports the Bible. It's without error, based on the doctrine of inspiration. God used human authorship, but so superintended their product that what came out through them, their personalities and uniqueness being kept intact, what came out is exactly what God intended to come out for us on this very day. And we should and ought to apply it regularly to our lives, but not by first asking, what does it mean to me? Oh, no. Oh, God, we must ask, what did you mean when you gave it to the first recipients? I've got to get back to that meaning because I can't make it mean what it never was meant to mean. Folks, we have a treasure, the written word of God. Don't treat it like junk. Read it. Don't read a verse in Matthew today and a verse in Isaiah tomorrow. If you're starting in Matthew, start in chapter 1, verse 1. And when you finish chapter 1, go to chapter... Yeah, 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 yeah. Please show some respect to conversation with Almighty God. Can you imagine if we spoke to one another that way? We had such disjointed conversation. Of course, we do. My wife and I... This happens all the time. But that's just marriage. Read the Bible one verse at a time all the way through because God gave it to us in a context and in an order and and to people groups. And you'll be able to identify who's the recipient, what's the circumstance, what applies to me, what doesn't apply to me today. It's a good book, the Bible. God's word. One day we will see the inscripturated word of God face to face. He's the incarnate word of God. He's the babe of Bethlehem whose birth we celebrate during this season and always. In fact, let's do this if you don't mind. Let's stand together and we'll sing our way out of here. And while I uh, um, prepare to lead us in a, a song... Could I tell you, next week we have the privilege of hearing from our youth pastor, Matt Settler. I don't know.